0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off-Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. Our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz and check out our Facebook page, Off-Grid Christianity. So, what was it like to be a major player in the scene that is now known as Northern Soul? What was it like to become a journalist for music magazines in the 70s, interviewing all the greats in pop, rock and soul? What was it like to change his life around when he became a Christian? What were the major differences in writing for secular and Christian publications back in the 80s? It gives me great pleasure to welcome to this podcast a man who is, and he'll tell me off for saying it, the David Attenborough of the UK's contemporary Christian music, and that is Mr Tony Cummings. Tony, thank you so much for taking valuable time out to join us today.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: If you're sitting comfortably, then I shall begin with the five important questions, or maybe not so important questions. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be?
1: I think I'd say Martin Luther. Oh, really? Because? I've always been intrigued that you could have a man who did so much for the growth of the Christian church, but end up doing so much wrong in history, because of his later writings, which were so anti-Jewish and which uh, fed the Nazis and did a huge amount of uh, damage. So I would love to have a conversation with him.
0: Yeah. In fact, many people aren't aware of that, are they? That Towards later on in his life, he, he did
1: change. A lot of people aren't aware of the fact that dear Martin Luther right near the end of his life he he launched into a series of anti-jewish writings yeah these writings were when the nazis were trying to get the power they made sure that these were republished retranslated and and put around all the churches in germany
0: yeah well when he does turn up for your meal perhaps you could ask him as well if it's true because i've read circumstantial evidence that his wife had one of the only licenses in their little town that he lived in to make alcohol, beer, and it's, it's generally thought, therefore, that she would sell the beer to fund his trips. So perhaps you could get confirmation on that for me, please, when you have you have I'll check that one out. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Question two Who is your favorite biblical character, or favorite biblical
1: story, or favorite parable, please, Tony? Well, I think my favorite Bible character is. Abed Melek the Kushite. Oh, because? <laughs> now, if you're not familiar with the story, and I can see the blank look on your face, Martin, Abed Melek had a, a bad deal in life, it would seem, that he was uh, a Kushite, which means he was black, and uh, he was captured by a king and put in charge of the harem. And they, um, they got rid of his private parts. And so he was somewhat incapacitated. This, of course, uh, didn't stop him from being uh, a great help around the palace. And uh, he was, in fact, a religious man. And he'd heard that the Jews, which were far off people he'd heard about, had a very special God. And he managed to uh, get a little bit of contact with the Jews. And eventually he got a job in the palace of a Jewish king. But there his problems really started because the Jewish king was a, a far from a godly man. And although there were these people wandering around Israel at the time called prophets, the king wanted power and riches and fame and all the standard things that kings seem to want but he didn't want to have anything to do with the, the god of his people and uh, he wanted victory over his enemies this particular king but he didn't want the prophets to say you're not going to have victory over your enemies and of course this particular prophet Gave in the news which really upset him hugely, this news that you're going to be wiped out by your enemies. He got very irate with this prophet and eventually decided he was going to put him to death. Sure enough, Jeremiah got thrown into a water cistern. Now, a water cistern was a very horrible way of killing somebody at the time in that you would, effectively go down a hole in the ground and you would gradually sink and you'd eventually drown in liquid mud. And there was Jeremiah stuck down this hole. What he didn't know was that this Abed-Melech character decided that he was going to help the prophet. And he did something which was incredibly dangerous. He went to the king and said, King, I think what you've done is wrong. I want you to give me permission to come along and rescue the prophet. The king, to everybody's amazement, the king agreed. And so Abed Malik set off, found the prophet lying in the hole, probably up to his neck in mud by this time, and with some men, pulled him with ropes covered in cloth out of the hole and rescued him. And that was Abed Malik the Kushite. I just thought it was such an amazing story of bravery and courage, if you like, Holy Spirit instinct, that he, he realized that this was uh, a thing that he had to do, despite not having very much grounding, if any, in the Jewish faith, that alone anything else. Yeah, yeah. He, he did it. And Ebed Melech was a Cushite. And uh, one day, years, years later in my life, I had the opportunity to preach in a little place which was either some experts believe was in Kush and is now in Southern Sudan. It was either a part of Egypt or part of Ethiopia, depending on which expert you speak to. But anyway, in a place which could have been Kush, I was able to preach once about Abed Malik the Kushite to a group of very interested Ethiopians.
0: Wow, good answer. Sorry it was so long. Well, no, (laughs) no, it wasn't the longest answer we've had, but it was getting up there, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) It was very good, though, very thorough. Thank you. Question three. If you were prime minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, good sir?
1: It would be a law making the companies which make huge amounts of money out of the internet, responsible for what they post onto their sites, or they allow others to post onto their sites. I think the saddest thing is we can access all kinds of evil stuff through our computers because other people are making profits from doing this. And there needs to be a worldwide attempt, and let's start in Britain, to block people from Putting up websites which give you detailed information on how to make bombs or detailed exhortations to hate other people because of the colour of their skin, etc., etc., etc. There are hundreds of evils which need to be blocked on our internet screens. And there has to be a will shown by some government to say enough is enough. We're going to stop this evil at least happening on the computer screens in our nation.
0: I suppose then that would mean they'd have to go on the dark web.
1: Maybe so. But then the majority uh, of
0: people like me wouldn't know how to get on the dark web. So
1: Precisely. I can't even get on the light web.
0: We won't talk about what happened before this podcast started. <laughs> <after the time. laughs>
1: we need to explain to everybody that I'm a complete internet incompetent. Anyway.
0: I don't need to explain that. You've just said it. <laughs> <laughs> But we got you on here, courtesy of WhatsApp. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Good old WhatsApp, thank you. Good old WhatsApp. Question four. Outside of family events, Tony, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please?
1: My most enjoyable day out so far was attending a football match with my daughter. Obscure football match, which would be a little interest to anybody outside of Plymouth, but it was an away match, Plymouth versus Crew. Plymouth Argyle 141, and the joy of cheering my team on with my daughter was absolutely ecstatic. I'm never going to forget that day.
0: That's brilliant. Plymouth Argyle, I could talk about Plymouth Argyle, as in the number of times I've been there and the number of times I've actually got into the ground.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One thing that everybody seems to say about the Plymouth Argyle fans is their loyalty and the fact that they're prepared to travel big distances Absolutely. to go and see them play every week. It's not lost it's, on it's, the, the
0: ordinary fan.
1: The Green Army is renowned. <laughs> I'd like to feel that they're renowned around the world. Well, they're <laughs>
0: certainly renowned for the fact that you've got at least two hours drive before you hit civilization sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> to get to Bristol, then then you can go and see any other team. But yeah, yes, uh, that's right. It's phenomenal. Green Army, that's all I can say. Green Army. Question five. And if people say, What do you mean by Green Army? They wear green, so there was a, and there right. was a classic advert when you had Paul Whitehouse yeah. going, Green Army. Green Army.
1: Question and five people still shout that at me today when I've got my Argyle shirt on.
0: Well, I'm not surprised. It's got to be done, yeah. isn't it? Question five, what has been your most embarrassing moment to
1: date, please, Tony? I don't really do embarrassment. I know that's a ridiculous thing to say. Not at all. But- I used to be quite a shy introvert. I know that's hard to believe because I'm not a shy introvert anymore. Once when I was in the very cusp of getting embarrassed in the grammar school I was attending at the time, something snapped in my brain. And so I began to shout in an embarrassing way. <laughs> if I'm going to blush and feel terrible, I'm going to make myself, a, you know, an idiot. Mm. By making myself an idiot, putting myself into what normally would have been hugely embarrassing, I found that all the fear dissipated. And I've really, since then, I've never really felt that embarrassed about anything.
0: No, you you have to learn how to laugh it off as well, don't you? That's the thing.
1: I think it's a very, very healthy thing to be laughing at ourselves and all the ridiculous things that we do and say i think it's very important to do that i think far too many people think too much of themselves Mm. it's not good for us
0: no no i mean some people might be embarrassed by going up to an elephant and saying oh hello my name's such and such (laughs) and then getting water squirted all over by said elephant all over that person in front of just one other person who should remain nameless but will call him me
1: <laughs> well, when you get old, you see you collect a few stories and some embarrassing incidents, and being squashed by a young elephant has it was just hilarious. one more incident in my life.
0: It was, no, it was it was funny because you you did not know that I was about fifty yards away walking up the lane. This was at Dudley Castle, way back in the uh, the nineteen nineties. We'd gone there yeah. to set up to do big gigs yeah. and everything else, and so because early in the morning neither knew each other were there
1: and you walked down
0: to the elephant enclosure and you said hello i'm tony cummings
1: obviously (laughs) the elephant knew my name and had an appropriate (laughs) response
0: he did what a history you've got in uh, music and most people most probably are unaware of this tell us first of all how you got into music in the first place tony
1: i've always been in the music my dad was into jazz and i grew up at listening to Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and his favourites on old scratchy 78s. Even from the age of about 10 or 11, my brother had a primitive transistor radio called a crystal set. And that with earphones, you could pick up radio stations, including the immortal Radio Luxembourg, which uh, was the first station anywhere in Europe Which played wall-to-wall pop music, and they would sell radio time to all the different record labels who would put on their own programs. And in these programs, they would give at least a couple of airplays to every new release that they put out. If you were prepared to listen for hours and hours to this really iffy signal coming through on your earphones, you could hear every new pop release that came out. Yeah. And I would listen for hour after hour after hour with a notebook, just making a note of the really, really good records. And that's how I got into music. And I really began to love some of these records that I could hear. And after a while, it was finally explained to me and I I began to read music papers and things. But most of the best records I had, heard were by African Americans. You know, when I first started getting these records, I had no idea that little Stevie Wonder or James Brown or Tina Turner or The Vibrations or hundreds more were African American. It just mm-hmm. never even occurred to me. Mm-hmm. I just knew that these were great records. So that's how I became at the age of about fourteen or fifteen, I became a very different music fan from all the other music fans in my classroom in that I was really into this strange subdivision of music which didn't really have a name other than rhythm and blues but was just beginning to be called soul music. And I I love this music. And so that became the music which I, well, I, I just really, really fell in love with it I had two passions in my life. I had Plymouth Argyle, and I had soul music. i still got those passions today, yeah, I yeah. suppose.
0: We're talking about the early mid-60s. Tamla Motown came yeah. to the forefront. Tell us more about then what became known as Northern Soul and how you got on board that train, please.
1: By about 59, 1960, uh, the Tamla Motown label it was established in America, out of Detroit, Within a year or two, some fans in Britain, particularly a chap called Dave Goldin, had started the Tamla Town Appreciation Society. And I was an early member of that society. Uh-huh. There were just dotted around Britain. People who were listening to Radio Luxembourg and reading the record mirror, which was the only paper which seemed to notice this music, soul music, it was possible to sort of uh hear some of this music on the radio and even buy some of the records if you could get your local record shop to get in Fingertips Part 2 by Little Stevie Wonder on Oriole Records, which was a, a tiny little record label which licensed Motown Records at the time. Now, the fact that this record was number two in the American pop charts meant nothing in Britain, you know, yeah. but they were like, 400 people in Britain who knew that this was an amazing record. And so we were like one of the little clique of people who were buying these records and it just grew and grew and grew. This little clique eventually became a mass audience over the years. As the years went on, this soul music just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, when I was expelled from school, but the only thing I wanted to do really was to listen to this music and find out as much information as I could about the uh, Tina Turners or the little Stevie yeah. Wonder's or the Vibrations or all these hundreds of other artists. And so I bought a duplicating machine and with a friend learned how to operate it. As you can tell, I'm very poor with machines. But I managed somehow or other to run off a few copies of this little magazine. It was later referred to as a fanzine, but at the time there wasn't such a word. I would run off a few copies of this magazine, put a little classified advert in Record Mirror, and sell them through the post. And as for material to go in the magazine, some of these soul artists and indeed other types of black American music, like blues music, some of these artists began to come to the UK. And so I would burst into their dressing room with my notebook, interview them, ask them a few questions about their records, and then publish the material in my runoff on a duplicator magazine. I suppose that's the beginnings of a journalistic career. Yeah, yeah. That's what I did for a few years.
0: Just going back there, because you just threw a little nugget in there, when I was yeah. expelled from school. <laughs> so the question yeah. has to be asked, what were you expelled from school for, please, sir? Oh, a very
1: simple reason, not going. <laughs> <laughs> There's a word in Plymouth, in Plymouth culture, called mitching, which means yeah, yeah. Playing truant. The easiest way of playing truant was simply set off for school but not get there. And uh, sometimes I would stay away for days at a time. I had another friend who didn't do particularly well at school and he would sometimes take off with me. I persuaded him that he should become a record-collecting fanatic as well. So we used to go around every single record shop, second-hand shop, any shop which had any singles or occasional albums, mainly singles, for sale and we would steal all the ones we wanted which were by black artists and so over a period of time i amassed a huge collection of records most of which i'd stolen moving on (laughs) 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 well
0: thank you for your honesty just goes to show though, doesn't it that even though you were mentioned off school which is a word that i think is used throughout the uk actually now, oh. you know, it didn't stop you from getting to a place within journalism, from breaking in to interview somebody backstage yeah. to setting up, if I remember correctly, an alternative coach transport system for people wanting to go to Northern Seoul in the 67, yeah. 68 up in Wigan. Yeah. How did that yeah. come about then?
1: I've always been quite good at sort of attracting other like-minded people to me and by the early days of my fan magazine, I brought in a, a group of people who were prepared to you know, write articles and do similar things to what I was doing. And uh, they helped me put out regular magazines and write articles for me. And included in these people uh, was a chap called Charlie Gillett. There was another fanzine, apart from mine, it was originally called Home of the Blues, which had come up with a, a newer name, and a slightly more appropriate name called Blues and Soul, though the Blues was never very much in that particular magazine. But anyway, Blues and Soul actually went on to the relative big time in that it, it became a properly printed colour cover magazine, uh, which was available in news agents. Most of the news agents were in the north of England, they would regularly publish articles with the Motown artists and the Stax Records artists and all the soul music of the day. I was uh, quite in awe of them because they got on to the, the bigger time journalism where yeah. my efforts remained somewhat more obscure. But anyway, I did find they began publishing uh, regular articles from a a chap that I knew from way back called Dave Goldin, that chap who ran the Tamala Motown Appreciation Society. And he was now writing about this strange scene that he discovered when he'd run a record shop, there were people coming down from the north of England who were looking for music, which sounded like the old Motown hits, but weren't the old Motown hits, they were, any other records which had that kind of sound so dave goldin's column began to chronicle all that was going on in these clubs in the north of england i became intrigued one of the reasons i was intrigued was that some of these records that were being played weren't very good i could clearly understand why they'd never sold in the first place some of them are very good i wrote uh, an article about this strange phenomenon The fact that there were clubs in the north of England who played some of this music, that created a lot of interest and lots of people were sending in letters into Record Mirror. I then decided that I would take a coach of people up and do some further investigation. And I was invited up by a DJ of the Blackpool Mecca, which is one of the key clubs Mm -hmm. playing this kind of music. So I I took a coach load of people up there only to be banned from actually getting in because Dave Golden found out about this trip. He got in touch with the management of the Blackpool Mecca and told them these troublemakers were coming up from the the south. And uh, we were banned from getting in. So I never actually, on that occasion, actually got into the club. That's terrible. Yeah, you know, all to water like under the bridge well, there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but even so, to do something like that in the 60s or early 70s, that's a bit underhand, isn't it?
1: It was a little bit sneaky. But then again, you see, what I was discovering about the Northern Soul fans were even more fanatical about the music than I was. I was a hardcore soul music fan. To me, it was about playing. Records in my bedroom, it wasn't about sort of uh, entering into a complete mm, like mm. parallel universe because the northern soul scene developed their own dances, they had their own drugs of choice, they were into amphetamines rather than the ganja and the, and the dope which I smoked, they had their own gatherings which would sometimes last day and night. There were things called all-nighters where they would dance through the night. But anyway, this whole northern soul scene became a a real phenomenon. When I became a full-time journalist, I I worked for a while in music copyright. But after leaving that copyright agency, I went to work in Fleet Street because the big publisher of the time was launching a magazine called Black Music They'd realised that soul music by this time had ceased to be an underground and had become this pop music phenomenon, and no other other music publications were, were covering this stuff very mm. much. So they went out on a limb, thought, "Yeah, there's a there's a big enough market here for it," and of course this was a big publishing company, and, and they said, "Well." If you can't get thirty to forty thousand sales in this magazine, you know, we'll we'll close it up. But they did get that kind of circulation, which was a lot more than blues and soul were ever gonna get. But of course, after a few issues of this magazine, and it was a kind of soul music fans dream job, one time I'd be interviewing the staple singers, and the next next issue I'd be interviewing Carl Douglas. I was interviewing all these, all these artists. But then my editor said, TC, we don't like really what Dave Golden is doing too much. It's, it's all pretty insular. And can you just go up there and do a, a proper journalist job? Listen to what people are saying. Look at what's being said and, and describe what is being going on there. Come back and do an article. So I did that. The article created a huge amount of interest hundreds of letters from people in the scene and outside of the scene. The article got republished in a book. I was offered an opportunity with my girlfriend at the time to write a whole book about Northern Seoul. And for a season, you know, I would make occasional journeys up to the clubs, Blackpool Meccas or the Wigan Casino, all the big clubs there, and I would do further articles about it i have to confess to you after uh about three or four years i was quite relieved when i didn't do what had been planned for me which was uh i'd signed a contract to write a book about northern soul with a girlfriend but rather than do the book i went to live in america and uh script a tv series and uh that seemed uh
0: what TV series
1: was that? Well, it was a TV series of a TV series which never got made. When I arrived in Los Angeles, I, I realised that having somebody throw some money at you saying, come here and write these scripts, didn't necessarily mean that these uh, ideas were ever going to see fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood at the time was absolutely full of people with scripts and uh ideas and how big companies could make a a fortune if only they would finance this film or finance this radio series or finance this album and i you know got taken up by a couple of young hopefuls who who'd had success in the music industry and felt they could expand this into a tv series being the history of the history of soul music but as it turned out that history never got off the pieces of paper that I was submitting. The TV series was just like my Northern Soul book, which never got uh, published. This TV series never got made. So there we go.
0: See, I was going to call you the nearly man because. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you're out in uh, Los Angeles, you are yeah. meeting all the famous people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah and quite a few of the soul singers you mentioned the staple singers quite a few of them most probably had a christian background or were christians themselves yeah
1: quite a few were
0: so what actually happened for you then to be out in that scene for you to think i'm really enjoying life this is what all about what made you then to think i'll tell you what let's see what this christianity is all about
1: i had absolutely no concept of what christianity was all about other than the fact that it The churches experienced by black Americans seemed to be very different from the churches which white people went to, and they had way better music. (laughs) And the churches seemed to be, consciously or unconsciously, training colleges for musicians so that just about every singer I possibly met, and I, I spoke to hundreds and hundreds of them, would tell me, Yeah, I started singing gospel. I started singing in church. It did intrigue me a bit. Before I actually went to live in America, I uh, went out to Philadelphia and I'd uh, written a book about the music of Philadelphia. And as part of that, I interviewed uh, one or two gospel artists, gospel DJs, and went to a a big concert uh, in a local church in Philadelphia. And it was there for the first time that I saw something which I really couldn't begin to understand. I actually saw people being affected, visibly affected, by something I couldn't describe. Mm. Uh,
0: Mm.
1: You know, there were people clearly engaging with something or someone. I just couldn't understand it. I just really didn't know what was going on around me. And it did have an effect on me in a sense. It left some very vivid memories with me because up until that time, I really thought that the messages you would see on occasional posters when you passed a church, like you know, Jesus is alive. What that meant was effectively, Jesus's teachings are still being remembered today. You know, in the same way that you could say that a famous figure from history was his teachings or his at least his life story would live on i thought it was like the memory of people that was living on Mm -hmm. and i had no idea beyond that suddenly i was engaging or i was witness to something in a church in philadelphia and then i began to talk to one or two people when i was living in america and it, and it dawned on me a little bit more that well i don't understand this faith business at all i cannot understand the story of jesus in any shape or form which seems to make any kind of relevance to me and yet these people claim that it makes every difference in the world. But I said, I I couldn't figure it. I just couldn't figure why certain of these singers were so adamant that there was something beyond themselves which they could find, whether they were going to church or not going to church. I just couldn't work out what this thing called Christian faith actually was.
0: Mm. I don't want to belittle you at all on this because if you... Read certain books on Northern Soul, and I remember you coming in one day saying, "Oh, look, this is brand new biography about the whole of Northern Soul written." And I thought, "Okay, let's have a look at the index." And I looked up your name because I didn't really know you that well that time. Yeah. And it said Tony Cummings, pages one fifty to page one ninety or something like that. And I thought, all right, will just get the occasional name drop," but no, pages one hundred fifty to one hundred ninety was all <laughs> about you, and it was just an amazing read. I just want to say that your ego, if there was such a thing in in those days, going over to America, thinking, well, I've done this, I've done that, to then suddenly come crashing down where you do become a Christian. What do you remember at that time?
1: I remember I came to a crisis. The idea of this TV series was just that. It was never going to happen. I was also very homesick. I wanted to get back to the UK. There were a few delightful people that I met who were genuine Christians in america but there were also lots of people who who had egos the size of houses uh, who were clearly living not good lifestyles and in some of them one or two artists who were killing themselves over cocaine use and stuff like that and i just thought i want to be away from this life but i don't know what life i want to go into now i just need to get some sort of equilibrium going in my life. And I also realized that I've been obsessively following a subject, even more obsessive than following Plymouth Argyle. I've become a fanatical record collector with thousands of records and endeavoring to hear every new release and all that kind of stuff and write about as many of them as I could. But I kept on getting the idea there has to be more Than this. There has to be more than football teams, music, or indeed anything else, any other that you can fill your life with. Mm. I tried to get other interests and things going, but, and suddenly I didn't want to pursue this stuff anymore. It was not that I suddenly stopped liking soul music, though it was changing musically and was beginning to move into something called disco music and I didn't like that so much. But it, it wasn't just that, it was just the fact that it seemed futile somehow to be spending all this time documenting or being absorbed into any human activity. It just didn't seem enough. I was very unhappy. I was uh, in a moment of crisis, really. I decided to write something not for publication, I wanted to look back over my life up to the most, some of my earliest memories of childhood. And the one thing I wanted to be was absolutely truthful. I realized that I'd done a lot of bad stuff. A lot of things have been very deceitful. I'd just been a liar, really. Despite all my desire to tell the truth about other people, i.e. singers and things, mm-hmm. I didn't feel that I was a very truthful person myself. I decided to write a story about myself where I would be absolutely truthful about everything. So I, I sat down and over a few about a month I wrote a big handwritten manuscript which was the story of my life up to that time. Not for publication, it was mm-hmm. just trying to be honest. For a moment I just felt that, you know, there was gonna be some payoff when I came to the end of this. I remember writing the final sentence something along the lines of, maybe somebody else will write a book like this one day.
0: Have you still got this manuscript, Tony? No. No, what not you? It's long gone.
1: I wrote it down, and I felt something very strange. And remember, by this time, I'm smoking great deal of marijuana. You could say I'm almost continually stoned, but... Hmm. I knew the difference between reality and non-reality. This was not a drug-induced experience, but I felt something come into the room where I was living. I felt a presence. And the only word that I could feel as opposed to hear was the word truth. I thought, well, that ties in Uh, what I'm been doing these last few weeks i've been trying to grapple with truth as it applies to me i want to be truthful i'm not truthful most of the time i'm a liar i'm an exaggerator i want to be truthful and suddenly i seem to be having an encounter with something and the only word which was coming to my mind was truth within two days of this continuing experience. the phone suddenly rang and it was uh, my ex-girlfriend who was worried about me and wanted to send me money to get me back to the UK and uh, wow. I took the money and came back. I tried to explain this experience to people subsequently but what can you say? I had an encounter with an entity which I think is truth doesn't make a lot of sense does it but it was such a powerful experience and all I knew then was that I had to start a new kind of life but the only thing I seemed to have any skills for was actually uh, writing and uh, making music and so I began to try and make a few recordings. I had friends who I could stay with and you had access to a very primitive recording studio. Once or twice, I was able to get access to a larger recording studio, and a few years just drifted by. It really was three or four years of just sitting around, sometimes planning the next recording session, if I ever could get the money to get into a studio.
0: So what were you doing at this time then?
1: Different things. I did a short spell as a dealer trying to sell dope, but I was absolutely pathetic at that because uh, once I got my hands on a lot of dope, all I would do was smoke it. So I was the world's most unsuccessful dealer. I also did a job for a few weeks as an AR man in a record company. They were a rather dubious record company with very dubious things, and I was really quite unhappy there. But I did that for a few weeks, and that raised some finance, which I could then spend in studios. And I signed on until eventually they decided that I had no intention of ever getting a proper paid tax and insurance job ever again. They took me to some sort of tribunal, and they got my benefits stopped until eventually I was... In a point of crisis, I had no income at all, no way of getting any income. And things seemed to be really, really in crisis for me. I owed months of rent. It seemed that, you know, I was uh, in serious jeopardy. Mm. I only probably had a couple of friends left by this time. I'd gone through more disastrous relationships and these friends would come around and smoke dope and uh i would tell them about a line which uh of the thousands and thousands of records i'd heard there was a record which haunted me why this particular record i i couldn't tell you but a rhythm and blues artist with a wonderful name of the mighty hannibal now that, you have to admit that's a great name yeah, it's good the mighty hannibal it made a record the name of the song which I just thought it was a great line, was the truth will set you free. And I just thought that was such a a great line. And I thought, that's it in a a nutshell. We are trapped in worlds of our own selfishness. We are obsessed with our own way of running our lives. We're in the prison of our own making. Our selfishness has entrapped us, It's ensnared us.
0: You say selfishness, because what comes to mind here is that an ex-girlfriend rather than keep the money herself, decides to bail out her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. So even though you might have been thinking you're the world's most selfish person, there were other people who most probably still valued what you were doing.
1: I think there were. I parts of my life which I've not told you is I had a failed marriage. Uh, There were at least two, three, maybe even four girls in my life who loved me and cared about me. Hmm. There are some people who, like myself, who seem to be incapable of really loving other people beyond a certain level. I think most of us realize that we need other people. And sooner or later, it's quite likely we're going to be saying to a man or a woman, I love you. How deep is that love? I don't know. I'd gone through a broken marriage. I'd gone through broken relationships and I come out the other side and I thought, I don't know whether I'd re- ever really deeply love them, but that's the nature of love. Getting back to that story of haunted by this song. I just knew that I could only get lifted out of this limiting selfishness. If I could find this truth, yes, would set me free. Mm-hmm. And I even had a fantasy of, you know, going off some expedition up to some obscure mountain somewhere and finding the some man I have, living a habit at the mountain. Oh, Master, tell me, what is the truth that will set me free? Yes. Something like that. Then a chap who was living in a very grim bedsit, where I was living at the time, told me that he was a backslidden Christian, which I didn't really understand what that meant but that he told me also that the truth will set you free was a direct quote from the Bible. And uh, I was amazed by that because I'd heard the stories about Jesus and what he taught and what he said and, and supposedly what he'd done, but I'd not really believed any of it. And then this backslidden Christian who had his own set of mental difficulties. And one of his difficulties was he was a, a gambling addict and he'd gone off and he'd uh, spent all his benefits gambling. By this time, my benefits had stopped. Mm. and Therefore I needed his benefits so I could eat occasionally. So I was well teed off when he came back and he said, you know, I, I've gambled all my benefits away. I remember that he was a backslidden Christian. And so I I had this sneaky idea. The idea was a very simple one. I was going to get him sat down in the room next to me and I was going to pray and I was going to ask his God, the God that he believed in or half believed in, to show him what a terrible scenario he was by going out and gambling all his money away. And I thought that would make him feel terrible for days. And he deserves to be terrible for days because he should be giving me some money to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I sat him down and I said, Lord Jesus Christ, because I know that's how you begin a prayer. And that feeling came back stronger than ever. That feeling that I'd had all those years ago in Hollywood, that feeling when I'd been in the room and I'd sought for truth. As soon as I said, Jesus, that feeling had returned I was lost for words. I started to cry. I couldn't understand why I was crying. I didn't understand anything about anything. I got him out of the room. Within 24 hours, I'd got my hands on a Bible. Wow. And uh, the next day, I went with this friend, this backslidden chap, to a church twice. Do, we,
0: do you remember which one it was?
1: can't remember the name, but it was uh, halfway up the hill in Hampstead. And it was uh, a traditional little Anglican church. Well,
0: What year are we and, talking about, Tony? Just the places. Oh,
1: that would be 1980.
0: Okay.
1: I went to the church in the morning and I, I came out of the church thinking, this is hopeless. I'm finding nothing here. I think the, the man dressed in the funny clothes, the vestments, I don't know why he's say, saying his stuff in such a funny voice. Oh, let us pray. I would like to thank you and why is he doing that sing song voice Yeah,
0: yeah
1: yeah i didn't relate to what he was saying i didn't relate to the music i didn't relate to any of it i just felt this is just really really dull and completely unremoved from anything that i can think or feel or say that afternoon this chap says there's a missionary giving a special message this evening at the church. Will you come back again? And I had nothing better to do. I thought, well, I'll give it one more shot. Now, the missionary was more interesting than the vicar in that this missionary had some slides and he he, he showed some slides of what the the missionary was doing and the work that he was doing in Africa. But it wasn't much more interesting. Again, it seemed to have no relevance for me. But at the end, rather than read something out which was obviously a prayer he extemporized a prayer and it was a long prayer and it went on so long that i started thinking just about who i thought jesus was and for the first time in my life i found myself thinking well who do i actually think jesus was do i think what i've been told and heard down the years that he was the son of god much to my amazement I thought, yes, I do. When that point of difference in my thinking it happened, I don't quite sure. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, yes, I do. I think that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then I thought to myself, Did I believe that he died on the cross to take the penalty for my sin? Well, this is this is quite extraordinary. I don't understand it. And yet I believe it's true. I believe that Jesus Christ did somehow take the punishment that I deserved into himself. I don't understand the whys and the hows, and I probably never will, but I do believe it. Of course, it was the next thought which really pulled me over because the next thought was, who do you think it is is speaking to you now? And that's when I burst into tears because that's when I realized that God himself was speaking to me and I became a Christian that night. Wow.
0: So I don't want to belittle you, Tone, obviously, but bringing it more up to date, having gone through the 70s, and let's face it, you were the editor of Black Music Magazine. You were there at the time. You were were involved in the behind the scenes with uh, the advent of punk music as we now know it. That's why I keep having a go at you. You need to write your autobiography because you've got so many stories (laughs) that I'd like to hear. You've got so many stories. Bring us up to date then with regard to how you got involved with Christian side of journalism. For instance, Buzz Magazine. How
1: did that come Yeah, When I became a Christian, I I I remember going to a church, which I'd become a member of, and and telling the pastor there, look, I'm not sure I can hack this uh, celibacy bit. And so he said, well, that's easy then. You just pray for a wife. But pastor, I don't have much money. And he says, don't worry about that. He says, just allow the Lord to lead your steps. And amazingly, within days of him telling me that, I was working with a a record company. They were making it quite clear that they were going to fire me unless I would kick this Christianity on the head and start into a cult that this uh, chap who ran the company belonged to. No, that's absolute no, I'm not going to do that. Almost to the day that I, I learned this, I was heading out out of the building where this company was based. And uh, this girl stopped me in the corridor. you would walk down the corridor to take a shortcut to the tube train and said to me, I know you. And I looked at her and didn't know her. And it turns out this was a girl who was to become my wife in a matter of months. And she took me on. She had a bit of money saved up because she was Australian and had been working her way around the world doing some paid work and saving up a bit of money. And so she blew the lot largely on our um, honeymoon wow. and uh, we got married, but it was obvious to me from the things that she said, almost like from the first day, she told me that she'd memorized an entire chapter of Romans. Oh,
0: really?
1: And as soon as I heard that, I thought, Well, Lord, this is clearly the lady for me. Yeah, I fancy her. I want to be a good husband to this lady. She is something special. And certainly she has been an incredible help to me. I'd already been told by doctors that I had a very low sperm count and that it would be very unlikely I'd ever be able to father children. In fact, they said it was just about impossible that I could father children. My dear wife, Maxine, became pregnant at our honeymoon. And so, (laughs) so much for the doctors. (laughs) And of course, subsequently, you had a a wonderful son as well. So, you know, we've been blessed with children and I've been hugely blessed by an extraordinary wife who has been amazingly supportive to a, a chap like myself, who's whose behavior is a little bit erratic. But the one thing you asked ages ago about how all this led to a career. Mm. Soon after I'd um, married Maxine, I was telling her that, you know, we had, I think we just got a, a CD player. No, it was a record player. And I was exhorting her to, uh, we must get some good music now for the record player. And I went to a Christian bookshop and, uh, bought a couple of albums, and there was a magazine there called Buzz Magazine, and I began reading Buzz Magazine because it was the only magazine that seemed to be able to review Christian music albums. And so I began writing for the magazine. And, of course, they were intrigued to have me on board because uh, they heard about my background, i.e., that I once been the assistant editor of black music magazine and had written a book about philadelphia soul music etc etc and they assumed i was black and so they were possibly disappointed when i turned up at the interview and i wasn't black at all but they gave me a a good background in doing interviews not only with musicians but with people generally and they would commission me to do certain articles and interview certain people. One month, it would be a famous uh, reverend who's got an album out or who's got a book out. Or the next month, it would be a musician or the next month, it would be a missionary. And, and so I would interview all these people. These years, I did with Buzz magazine, a magazine which is still going. It's got a new name now. It's called uh, Premier Christianity. Magazine, and interestingly enough, I still write occasional articles for the the magazine now. Wow! After that, I had an idea which I believed was a God idea, which was to start a, a magazine specifically about Christian music, which was growing and growing. And there were now different types of music, you know, there was stuff made by white people which they often referred to as contemporary christian music there was stuff made by black artists which they continued to refer to as gospel music but that all this stuff needed to be written about despite the fact that more than half the the bookshops of the time the christian bookshops wouldn't even stock it sale or return i've never been that much interested in sort of uh dealing with the financial side of business I'm far more interested in doing the things that I believe God had given me to do he'd given me this job to do to start this magazine and sure enough he kept it alive and of course in time it grew into a a radio ministry uh, which was pretty well known and it still continued to grow to this day so I had Very good and satisfying and encouraging experiences with Christian media. Eventually, I I was even able to sort of put together a a weekly radio program called The Spirit of Rock and Soul, which is uh, still being syndicated to different radio stations around the world, an effort to locate the thousand and one greatest recordings ever made in the areas of gospel and Christian music. Wow. Yeah, it was a, a very encouraging sign in my life. But it, it wasn't everything that I, I, I believed that the Lord wanted me to do. When after the Christian music stuff seemed to be coming to an end, and we were moving into a new era, i.e. streaming, mm. plus the fact that we had a pandemic, the COVID thing, it became obvious that my time in paid journalism at Cross Rhythms Had come to an end, and there were new things for me to do. One of those things being that uh, autobiography, which you mentioned earlier, which I will write.
0: It has to be done because I want this particular episode to encourage those, Tony, that can maybe identify with what you've been sharing. You've been very honest, which is great. Uh but when you're really feeling down and totally fed up, you still are able to get back up. We can look back at your past life and look at, as I said earlier on, like you're the nearly man. You could have achieved so much. Dave Godin did instead. In the 70s, you could have been whatever, but it never quite happened. What would you say to those people who are like feeling really fed up and maybe even Christians themselves and say, oh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's worth carrying on, going to church, let alone being a Christian. What would you say to them?
1: I don't think that the Christian life, whatever you do with it, is going to be particularly easy. But it's so much better than any other kind of life. There was a moment in my life when I was very badly let down by the pastor of the church I was attending at the time. Maxine and I had to deal with a pastor... Who, by having an immoral, having a sexual affair with a worship leader, and uh, came close to holding the church up, and certainly had a very deep effects on us. Somehow or other, I realised that although having other Christians around us is essential, it's not really essential to go to church to still be a Christian. The key thing about being a Christian is the love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we start to love him with those elements, he begins to love us back and we feel this love. This love, this peace, this joy never ever leaves us. Momentarily, it seems to. Momentarily through circumstances we find ourselves in particularly if some aspects of our church life disintegrate like our pastor lets us down badly or people around us show themselves to be doing bad things or the circumstances in our lives just aren't working out mm. we do get depressed we do get brought down we do get felt well this is not worth going on yeah, yeah. but The answer is always the same. Get back to prayer. Only the other day I read something from a missionary and she said, when it gets really bad, still pray. And if you can't pray anything at all, pray the Lord's Prayer, but pray every day and pray and in addition to praying, read something from the Bible every day. Even though it doesn't seem to make any kind of sense to you, had any kind of relevance to you, continue to do that. Continue to try and live as good a life as you can. And sooner or later, the peace and the joy, which are always going to be yours, will return to you. We, we will go through some really hills. We're going to be going through times when we're, We're literally hanging on, and it's just nothing seems to be getting through in terms of our experience. Yes, But there will be other times when our faith is being rewarded with peace and joy and all kinds of empowering which will make each moment feel good. We're going to have times when we feel nothing, and there are going to be times when we feel immense pleasure and joy, and there'll be a mixture of those things.
0: Tony, what's kept you going though? Because if we look back, yeah, uh, you know, you, you haven't exactly made a lot of money out of, <laughs> <laughs> out of all the things you've touched. You know, and I do mean it lovingly when I say you're yeah. near. Yeah, I,
1: I, but what's yeah. kept you going? He has. If we call on him, if we pray to him every day. He will always bring us back to new experience of Him. And when we are in the center of this experiential faith, when we're in the middle of this incredible experience of the living God through His Holy Spirit, we're ruined for anything else. This is the essence of what rewarding, rich life is. If we've got a few momentary problems, if we're skin. Or if many of our friends have betrayed us or most of our loved ones have died or whatever the difficulties and problems, there is always comfort. There is always always empowering. There's always the ability to come back again and again and again. Our destiny for each Christian is to go stronger and richer as we allow him to shape us and mold us into what the bible or theologians refer to as sanctification our destiny as a christian is to be made bit by bit and transformed into his image and that will happen to each of us
0: looking back on your past life then what about the times when you felt why god did you let me go through it why did you let that happen to me what would you say
1: often you don't get direct answers to those kind of questions we don't need to have an answer to every question maxine and i we lost a child at birth our second child did not survive like any person who experienced that kind of grief you ask why Mm. never heard an answer but the extraordinary thing about the promise of god is this that we don't always need an answer for it to be a good answer. I don't think I ever will be afraid again, because as you go on in the Christian life, more and more and more and more you will trust, even though you don't get answers. Trust, peace and joy are the destiny of every Christian, even though momentarily, Will go through pain and difficulty. All of us, Jesus Himself, went through gigantic pain and difficulty mm. and took that pain and difficulty into Himself so that we only go through a fraction of what Jesus Himself went through. We do share a bit of the pain and the difficulty. We do share a bit of God's tough times. Yes. But only a little bit. His love for us is so intense, so deep that he'll always give us a way out. Always.
0: Well Tony. So to sum it all up then about what you have learnt since you've become a Christian, what would you say, Tony?
1: Just reiterate again. He will never leave us or forsake us. Ever. To those who are truly given their lives to him, he's not gonna suddenly let it go. If we've given our lives to him, that's it. We are converted. We are being transformed by degrees. Okay, we can hold up the process to a large degree, but we're all on the journey forward. And we've all got the absolute certainty that one day we will be delivered into glory. And that's a great certainty.
0: Tony, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing what you shared just leaves me now with one final question if that's okay sir i ask every person on this podcast to name their christian hero so tony cummings who is your
1: christian hero please martin luther king
0: another martin luther but with the king added on fantastic tell me more why you chose this great and i do mean great man
1: because he's had such a lasting effect on the direction in which our whole world is heading Because of my particular interests and my cultural background, I've always had a particular interest for African-American culture. Mm. And long before I uh, realized how important this man was to be, he showed himself to be a man who was prepared to sacrifice everything for the good of those around him. Martin Luther King was the great defender, the freedom fighter, The black community in the 60s and 70s he rescued the whole black american community from the hatred we could truly do with another martin luther king today but in the meantime we all have a part to play in defending individuals whether they're caught in areas of racism or whether they're caught in other things you know everybody needs to be rescued from the bondages All of us can only maybe only be able to rescue the one in the two.
0: And going back to Martin Luther King, who is generally one of my heroes, you know, he paid the ultimate by being uh, shot dead on a balcony in Memphis. Yeah. But what his lasting history is proving is that, hey, there are ways, you know, he yeah. never raised a punch, did he? He, oh. you know, he organises peace marches and things like that. And we've got these amazing legacies still of him, of his uh, I Have a Dream speech and stuff. Yeah. People must probably forget, but next time you hear a happy birthday song by Stevie Wonder, who you've talked about already, that's actually about Martin Luther King. Yeah. Tony, thank you so much for spending valuable time today. It's been an immense pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much, Tony.
1: Thank you. And God bless you, my friend.
0: Cheers, God bless.